I'm the lead pastor here. If you are new, I am glad to uh, see you and welcome you here today. Uh, if you come today and you are new, this is a great uh, Sunday to come because today is Small Group Sunday. And uh, Small Group Sunday is the day that we as a church uh, invite everybody to sign up to be part of a small group. We do it twice a year. We do it in the fall for our fall semester of small groups. We do it again in January for our spring semester. And what is a small group? So a small group is, uh, it's a smaller group that meets in a home. And uh, we do lots of things together in these small groups. About 10 to 12 people will eat together. We will study together. We pray together, uh, serve together, and essentially do life together. And the way we like to say it is that on Sunday morning, we do church around a stage in rows. And in small groups, we do church in homes around a table. Church around a table. And these groups are huge for us. So uh, they've been a part of our church from the very beginning. So last week, we, have a, we had a prayer meeting on Wednesday. And uh, somebody was in the prayer meeting that had been part of this church from the very beginning. The church is about 15 years old. And uh, as we were praying for people to, to get in these small groups and for the vibrancy of these groups that meet together, at one point, uh, she said, uh, you know, these groups have been part, they're part of the DNA of fellowship. And it's very true. Uh, from the very beginning, the, the church, that, the, the group of people that started this church, part of their vision, part of their passion was to have a, have a church that is rooted in smaller communities. Uh, communities that meet uh, in homes throughout the week, just simply doing life together. This is part of our DNA. This is huge for us as our, at, at our church. We are passionate about church around a table. And this morning, uh, I want to ask you to sign up, like I said, but I want to answer the question, why are we so passionate about small groups? Why are these so important? Why do we do these? Uh, why, why, why do we want everybody to be part of a small group community? We're going to answer the question, why? Because if you're new, uh, you may have never been in a small group before, and there's a lot of ways to do church. Uh, you, there's Sunday school, there is, uh, there's churches that meet in big groups, a big group on Sunday morning, a big group on Sunday night, and a big group on Wednesday night. So not every church does small groups, and so you may have never been a part of one of these before. And so I want to ask the question, why? Why do we do these? Why are we so passionate about them? Why do we think it's so important for everybody to be a part of one of these smaller communities? And, and, and even if you're not new, it's always good to remind yourself of why we're, we're doing what we're doing. So like I've been here at Fellowship for six years, and so this is my 12th semester of being in a small group. And, uh, you know, after you've been doing it for so long, you, you, you kind of start asking, like, why am I doing this again? Uh, and small groups can be cumbersome, you know. They, they're, they're, they're costly in terms of time and money. They are awkward on some occasions, especially if you're an introvert. Uh, they are, they're messy, you know, because you're in a home with, with people, sinful people, broken people. And so sometimes you can ask yourself the question, uh, why are we doing this again? Why are we doing it again? And that's a very good question to remind ourselves of the why of, of a certain practice. We don't want to do it just to do it. And so this morning, I want to answer, why, why do small groups? And in order to answer the question, I want to take us back to the very beginning of the early church. I want to, I want to bring us back to the practice of the, the early Christians in the first century. Because core to, to these first Christians was the practice of uh, doing church around a table. So I want to tell you that story, and I want to do it by uh, making three points today. Uh, we're going to see that church around the table for the early Christians was normative, it was formative, and it was transformative. 
So church around a table was normative, formative, and transformative. Lucas this morning said, did you think of that outline all by yourself? And I did. <laughs> Came out of my own little brain here. But I think it's really important. So let's look and see that uh, church around a table, church in smaller communities was normative for the first Christians. And we're going to do it by looking at Colossians chapter uh, 4, Verse 15, so if you want to turn there, it's also going to come up on the screen. And uh, we've been in the book of Colossians, and we've been studying this book. This is a letter written by Paul the Apostle. And uh, it was a letter that was addressed to several different churches in the first century, and, and it was passed around from church to church and read aloud to, to each particular community. And so uh, this is the end of the letter, and, and Paul, like every, every letter, is saying goodbye, you know, and he's giving his greetings. And this is what he says in chapter 4, v- verse 15. He says, Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea, and to Nympha, and to the church in her house. So imagine this letter being read. And when you imagine it, don't imagine like what we're doing here today. You know, uh, a, a lot of people sitting in rows, gathered around a stage, listening to a letter. That's not the way it was at all. Instead, imagine a small group of people, probably 15 to 20, a meeting in somebody's home around a dinner table, eating a meal, and listening to Paul's letter being read aloud. And he says at the very end, Greet, Greetings to you, Nympha, and to all the church that meets in your house. So this is the way it was in Colossians, in the city of Colossians, in Colossae. But it's not, it's not only this particular community that met in a house. This was normative for every church there at the very beginning in the first century. And so, for example, this is another one of Paul's letters. This is Romans 16, verse 2. He says, Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus. Greet also the church that meets in their house. Right, so it's not only in Colossae, but it's also in Rome. Rome is also a small church that met in somebody's house. Paul says, greet them. And then this is Philemon. This is another church. Paul says, uh, Paul, uh, uh, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, also to Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets where? In your home. And so in the first century, this was, this was common practice. There were, there were no big, uh, you know, basilicas. There were no stages there. This is the way the church met. It was a small group, 15 to 20 people, uh, meeting in somebody's house, a house that was op- opened up by a patron or a wealthy Christian, uh, sitting around a table, sharing a meal together, teaching prayers, but it's all in a home, meeting together as family. And this is the way it went on for for quite some time. This is the way Christians met for the first two centuries of the early church. And so uh, up on the screen is going to come a picture of one of the early Christian uh, meeting places. Um, It is going to come up. There it is. And uh, this essentially is a house. It's a a little uh, house in the city of Dura that that was, uh, uh, it met, uh, it it was constructed in 240 AD. And uh, this was essentially somebody's house and they had reconstructed it so that the, the middle was big enough so that a group of people could meet there and eat a meal. But this is the way it was. This is how early Christians, Christians met. It was all around a table in somebody's house. It wasn't until the fourth century, you know, the time of Constantine, when basilicas and big chapels with naves and, and large public meeting spaces were developed. Up until that time, it was these little tiny communities. 
Now, somebody might ask the question, what did they do in these little communities? What, what was it like? You know, they met in homes around a table, but what did the Christians do? Uh, you know, what, what did they do when they met together? Well, in Acts chapter 2, there's a little snapshot that gives us a, a window into what Christians did when they met in these homes. So this is uh, the, the end of chapter 2 in the book of Acts. It says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching uh, as they met in homes uh, and fellowship and to the breaking of bread and prayers. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So here's a little snapshot. Here's a little window into what they did. They, they studied together. They fellowshiped together, which essentially is a word for doing life together. They prayed and, they, and they, uh, there was prophecy involved. They, they, were, were, they were doing all this. But notice there's one thing that's repeated three times in the passage. Uh, it says in verse 45, uh, they, they were, they, uh, the fellowship under the breaking of bread and of prayers. Then in verse 47, it says, 47, it says they, uh, together they, were, they broke bread in their homes. And then it says they ate their food with glad and generous hearts. So what is repeated again and again and again? What do they do? We know for sure they ate a meal together. They ate as they met together in homes. Now this is uh, 1,500 years before Gutenberg, two millennia before Bill Gates and Microsoft Word. If you wanted to emphasize a point, if the authors of scripture wanted to emphasize a point or drive a point home, you didn't have italics or bold or underline. You didn't have a highlighter. If you wanted to emphasize something, you repeated it. So the author of the book of Acts wants us to know that at very least what these people did together when they came together is they ate. Central to the early Christian gathering was food. Can I get an amen, people? They loved to eat together. Every time they got together, there was always food involved, right? Of course, there was teaching and there was prayers and there were songs, but central to their practice was, was a table, eating a meal as family in a home. In fact, the early Christian gathering was a meal. This is what it was. And it's not that the meal was, uh, part, you know, was before or after the main event. The meal was the main event. And so, on the first day of the week, that's when they met. It was a Sunday. And in the evening, they would meet because Sunday was a work day back then. They would gather in somebody's home. Like I said, it was somebody who was wealthy. They would gather around a table, 15 to 20 people, and the main event was eating a meal together. First Corinthians 11, Paul is alluding to this when he tells the Corinthians, when you come together to eat, right? And so this is what they were doing. In fact, the early Christians had a name for their weekly gathering. Does anybody know what it was? Anybody want to nerd out on me right now? Uh, know what the name they gave their gathering? Nobody, it's okay. It was called the Love Feast, how 60s is that? <laughs> or in Greek, it was the agape feast. And so they would gather together. They would, they would uh, you know, do life together in a community, teaching, uh, prayers, and singing, but it was all gathered around a meal. In fact, the Lord's Supper, we're gonna take it this morning. Uh, back then, it wasn't like this little thing you did in church where you had a little tiny wafer and a little glass of juice. It was, it was always done in the context of a full-on meal in a house. They were eating together in the context of the Lord's Supper. And, and there's, a, there's a little uh, 
description of one of these first meals. This is from Tertullian, and Tertullian is an early church father, a philosopher, a pastor, and this is how he describes the, the love feast. He says, our feast explains itself by its name. The Greeks call it agape. Whatever it costs, our outlay in the name of piety is gain. So whatever it costs, this is costly, time and money, but whatever it costs, he says it's always gain, it's always worth it. Since the good things of the feast, we benefit the needy. As with God himself, a particular respect is shown to the lowly. So these were meals where social justice was a concern, where they would welcome the poor and the lowly and the needy into their midst. As with God himself, a particular respect is shown to the lowly. The participants before reclining, so they, the way they did it back then is they would recline on their sides around a table to eat this meal. So the participants before reclining taste first of prayer to God as much as eaten is satisfied the cravings of hunger, as much as drunk as befits the chase. Some of you need to listen to that. After each is asked to stand forth and sing as, as he can a hymn to God either from the holy scriptures or of one's own composing. As the feast commended with prayer, so with prayer it closed. So here it is. The main Christian gathering, it was church around a table, the love feast. And I love how simple it was. Doing life together, listening to the scripture together. I love what it says also, uh, uh, you know, each one sings a song, either of his own composing or from the scriptures. And so we're doing this in my small group. <laughs> Anita, where are you? It's, it's your turn this Sunday, you know, she's going to stand up. Okay, Anita. Is this one of your own, or is this Hillsong, or United? You know, what do you want to sing? Uh, you know, but this is what they did. There were prayers, there was singing, but there was always a meal. And here's my point. There are things about the modern church that we assume are normal. Things like church around a stage. Things like, you know, you know a big gathering and, and sitting in rows that, are, that were not always normal. In the early church, it was in a home. It was in community. It was gathered around a meal. And I'm not saying that this is wrong what we're doing. I mean, church, I love church around a stage. Church around a stage is necessary. Hearing the word of God preached. Uh, singing corporately together uh, to God. These are, th this is all very important. It's such a beautiful thing what we're doing here this morning. And yet we do not want to lose this practice. Because it was a practice. I mean, part of why they did this is, is out of necessity. So remember, this is the first century, and, and the Christian religion is illegal, right? And so when your religion is illegal, you cannot build a basilica. You cannot meet in public. It was, it was a necessity to meet privately, quietly in a home. But it wasn't just a necessity. I think what they were doing was very intentional. Because, because they were practicing something that they observed in the life of Jesus. When you look at the life of Jesus, he was always gathering together with his disciples. He was always teaching them in the context of a meal. He was always inviting the people, all the wrong people usually, to have meals together. This was part of what Jesus did. Somebody once said that when you read the Gospels, Jesus is either coming to a meal, eating a meal, or leaving a meal. You cannot read the Gospels without getting hungry because Jesus is always eating and this was part of Jesus' practice. It was intentional. It was about building community. Eating together always catalyzes community. And so the early Christians uh, did this not just out of necessity, 
but because they knew that this was something that formed them. Church around a table is not only normative, but it's also formative. You see, it matters how we meet and what we do when we meet. It matters the building that we're in. It matters uh, what we do when we're together. Because what you do forms you. And when these Christians practiced these meals, it formed them. It shaped them. It told them something very important about what Christianity at base is. For one thing, it reminded them that that as, as Christians, we are part of a family. Some of you may know that the word Christian is used a meager three times in the New Testament. And there are two other words that were far more dominant words to describe what you and I are in relationship to God and to one another. And the first was the Greek word methetes. Can we all say that together? Methetes. This was the word disciple. Uh, It also meant um, apprentice. And this is used uh, 268 times throughout the New Testament to describe Christians. The other word that's used to describe Christians is the Greek word adelphoi. Can we all say that? This is the word brethren. It literally means brother or sister. It's used upwards of 350 times in the New Testament. And when, you, when, when you're doing church in a home around a table, it reminds you of what you are as a Christian. You are not just a learner taking notes in a classroom. You are not just a passive observer watching a service. When you do life together in a home, it reminds you of who you are. You are part of the family of God. Look at the person next to you and say, we are family. Now sing it like this. We are family. (laughs) Some of you are family. But whether you're family or not, every single Christian is a brother or a sister. This goes all the way back to what Jesus said. At one point, Mark 3.35, he said, whoever does the will of God is my brother, sister, and mother. And there's a beautiful description in Ephesians 2 of the, of the church where Paul says, you were formerly enemies, Jew and Gentiles. You, you were formerly at enmity with one another, without God in the world. But God has brought you together. Jew and Gentile, male and female, slave and free. God has brought you together into what he says, the household of God. And when you do a meal together, when you gather together in a home, it reminds you of who you are. You are family. You are part of of the household of faith. Meals reinforce that. Meals also reinforce the, the crucial virtue of love. You remember Jesus, right before he died, it was one of the last things he said. He said, uh, he, said, he said, the new commandment I give you, that you love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Jesus says, here's the one thing I want you to do. Here's the one thing I want you to do. Here's the new commandment. Here's the thing that, that will identify you to everyone, that you are my follower, is if you love one another. And eating eating a meal with somebody, a gathering together in somebody's house, uh, sitting around a table with real flesh and blood humans is the only way you can really learn to love people. You know, you come here in this room, and I'm so glad that you do, but you can come and leave without ever meeting anybody or talking to anybody or knowing anybody. You can come and go and, and learn and 
and understand the Bible and yet never get into anybody's life. But it's in somebody's home when you join a small group and you get to know and you become known by other flesh and blood humans that you can learn to bear one another's burdens, that you could, you could love to forgive one another and bear with one another and help one another and serve one another. You know, there's a word that goes through, all, goes, it's a through line all the way through the New Testament and it's the, it's the phrase one another. You should do that sometime. Go through the New Testament and see how often the phrase one another is used. You cannot one another unless you know an other, a real flesh and blood other. And imagine the early church, this really formed them. When they, when they came into somebody's house, you know, you walk into somebody's space and it's sort of uncomfortable and you're sitting across the table with, with a real person. That's when you learn to love and listen to and care for others. And the early church, it was so amazing because there, the ancient world was stratified and there was a wide gap between the rich and the poor. But at these meals around a table in the Christian community, everybody was equal. Everybody was a Delphoi. Everybody was brother and sister and there was, there was a unity there. There's a great uh, quote from uh, a, a character in the, in the uh, Brothers Karamazov, a Dostoevsky's novel, where uh, the character is a doctor and he calls himself a humanitarian. And uh, he, the thing about him is he loves humanity. He has these grand views about how much he loves humanity. The problem is he hates people. He can't stand to be in the same room with another human. And I think we can glamorize the word love and have sort of this hallmark, you know, gooey, uh, you know, not abstract view of love, but in a small group, around a table, in people's life, is when you learn how to love people that are different than you. A new commandment I give you, love one another, flesh and blood others, real people around a table. It also, it reinforces this, this crucial idea of hospitality. You know, think about it. If you open up your home, there's hospitality there. You, the person whose home you're in, in is, is, is offering you welcome. And you're imposing on their welcome. And this was a core uh, practice in the early church. Every time you went to church, you were, you were imposing on somebody's hospitality. And in our world, we think about hospitality. Who do we think of? We think of Martha Stewart, you know. We think of flowers and shiplap and... Uh, Wait, that's fixer-upper. But, you know, you think, <laughs> you think of these things. In the ancient world, uh, the Greek word for hospitality was philoxenia, to, a, a compound word, two Greek words put together. The word philia, is, or, is, or philo, is the word love. Uh, you know, Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, it meant to love somebody as a brother. And the word xenia is the word for stranger. Somebody who's xenophobic is somebody who fears people of other races and cultures. Hospitality means to welcome the stranger, to love the stranger like a brother. And so this was the early church, you know, welcoming people in, around a table, in a home, knowing one another and being known by people that, but sometimes are radically different and of different social classes and backgrounds, and yet you're gathering together. And what I want you to see is that this was transformative. I mean, this practice of the early church absolutely revolutionized the Roman world. It's such a simple idea, church around a table. Such a simple idea, gathering in a small group. I want you to know it was revolutionary. 
Such a, such a basic idea, but most of the most dangerous, provocative, and life-changing ideas are. Because the Roman world was a brutal, lonely place. And it was stratified, and there was this big gap between the rich and the poor, like I said. And, and there was oppression, and there was injustice. And there were orphans and widows that weren't being cared for. There were people disconnected from families. And slaves and the lonely and the outcasts and the disassociated would find family and belonging in church around a table. As they were welcomed into somebody's home, sometimes for for the first time, when they were welcomed around the table, they found connection and belonging and a new identity and they felt like they were part of a family. And I will tell you that, that loneliness is not something that was just part of the ancient world. Loneliness is epidemic in our culture. Mother Teresa said, loneliness is the leprosy of the modern world. And with all of our social media and Instagram and Facebook, there are so many people in our culture that are disconnected and disassociated. There are people in our culture that go through life without knowing or being known by anybody. And how revolutionary is it? How powerful is it? When, when in the church we do life together and welcome people in around a table where they could find connection. Absolutely transformative. Francis Schaeffer was a, uh, he was a uh, scholar, he was a philosopher, but he also uh, believed deeply in community and he had these little communities called Labrie that met around the world where they would house people like a youth hostel. They would eat together, they'd study together and they would you know, uh, read scripture together. And uh, through these communities, he transforms people's, people's lives. And there was one conference where somebody asked him, Francis Schaeffer, how did you do it? How do you transform people's lives like this? And this is what he said. He said, start personally and start in your home. I dare you. I dare you in the name of Jesus Christ. Do what I am going to suggest. Begin by opening your home for community. You, do not need, you don't need a big program. You don't need to convince the session or the board All you have to do is open your home and begin. And that's what he did. And and, and that's what we're trying to do in the small groups here. We're trying to open homes and and do life together and and experience community. And by doing that, see God transform and form our lives. Ah, there's a fly up here. It was here first service. Um, Here's another quote. This is from a guy named John Vanier. John Vanier was another guy who believed in community. He had these little uh, intentional communities called La Arche. He was French. And uh, he wrote a book called Community and Growth. And uh, here's what he says about community. Now, now just listen to this because I think this is such a beautiful vision of what this could be. He says, in years to come, we're going to need many small communities which will welcome lost and lonely people, offering them a new form of family and a sense of belonging. In the past, Christians who wanted to follow Jesus opened hospitals and schools. Now there are so many of these, Christians must commit themselves to the new communities of welcome, to live with people who have no other family, and to show them that they are loved. Uh, one of my first experience of, experiences of Christian transformation, I, I became a Christian at 18, and I was baptized, I think, at 19. But I, I remember the, the season when my life really began to grow. And it's when my parents opened up their home for a small group Bible study. 
And uh, at first it was just family, you know, my parents and my aunt and uncle and then some of their friends. And then when me and Josh, my brother, got baptized, we joined this little Bible study. And then we just started inviting our friends into our house. And we had some weird friends. There was some dude that would come a half an hour early and open up our refrigerator. And it was like, dude, stop that. You're welcome, but not that welcome, man. But, man, I remember that. I remember that time in my life, and I remember the vibrancy. And I remember the life, and I remember the welcome. Church around a table, in homes, around a meal, drinking coffee. In the 90s, for us, it was bad coffee. Drinking coffee, doing life together. So we believe in this. As a church, we believe in this. This is not, this this is part of our DNA, and this is the reason why. It's because we don't just want to meet around a stage, learners only. We want to do life together. Just as the early church, they met together and they ate together, and daily, day by day, God was adding to the church. Because of its vibrancy, because it was so compelling, God was adding to the church people who wanted to be saved. So uh, what we're going to do now is we're going to watch a short video, and it's a video of a couple guys that met in one of our small groups. And uh, watch it. Some of you know these guys, but they're very, very different from one another. And uh, it's so fun to see their relationships. So it's a short little clip, and let's watch it, and then we'll be done. Recording, was it? You know, I, man, I really wish it was. Sad thing is, it's not the first time I've heard you say that. <laughs> <laughs> it's like... <laughs> Did you draw straws for this job or what? Um, my wife's name is Jennifer. I've got a son named Jonathan. And we've been in Batesville for about seven years now. My name is Randy. I'm married to Kristen. I have two sons, Aiden and Cooper. We've been coming to fellowship since about 2010. And we were just talking about that. Um, we're not really sure how we first met. No, I don't remember um, the first meeting. It must have been a small group. It, it probably was in small group. Well, I, I, I thought you were an upstanding professional guy. I was very intimidated, actually, because you, you know, there's a banking background, and you seem to have it all together. And it, was, it was hard for me to kind of relax around you, because I, I very much wanted to Cut, we're done. Yeah. <laughs> I stopped caring after a while. <laughs> yeah, I just remember, like I said, you were you were really quiet. You know, the, the thing that that I'm still probably the most impressed with is how patient you are. I've admitted this a thousand times, you know, I, I can be kind of a selfish and self-centered person and you're you're the opposite of that. So immediately you were someone I could be selfish with. <laughs> there, there may have been a setting where we would have crossed paths. You know, we, we, we have formed some, some 
common interest um, over the last several years. But other, other than, you know, I always get tickled and I always tell uh, everybody, you know, when we first started hanging out, and I, I'd say, hey, again, you want to come watch you know, football? Oh, I love sports ball. I love, I love sports ball. <laughs> <laughs> it's, my, it's my favorite thing. I know all of people. Yeah. I'm much more of an entertainment science fiction nerd. I love comic books and movies and games and things like that. So I'm much more indoor. I don't really have a, a very big interest in sports, but I can get into other people doing it. So we kind of match up pretty well like that. I, I think small group, we were able to connect a little deeper because uh, I think when you first meet people, I think everyone maybe is a little superficial. You want them to see a good size of you, but in small group, you, you talk about things and, and when you get when you get down into the meat of it, it's it's a little bit deeper than just the, the surface material. And really, all the all the guys in our, our small group, um, and I you know, wouldn't want to speak for them, but kind of all have that that same relationship. Mm -hmm. You know, we all kind of agree with that. Um, different perspectives, different backgrounds, um, different struggles. first started coming, um, Kristen started asking me about small group, and I was very, very hesitant. You know, it's more time away, you know, it's, it's less time to do whatever else it is that I'm interested in. But we started going to, to a small group, and it's, it's one of those things where at first, you know, you're, you're kind of dreading it, even, you know, well, I, back then, kind of dreading going, but then after you went, after I went, I was very glad that I did. The people that you meet in small group are people that you wouldn't necessarily run into in the rest of your life because of your different backgrounds and your different interests. And it's nice to meet them in small group and get to know them on a personal level and find out that you do have common interests and that can grow and lead to real friendships. And then you wouldn't have met them any other way, really. So I, I think that's very cool. So the application of the sermon, we've got a little card in your seat. And on the card are all of our small groups. And you can peruse those groups. There's uh, 12 in all. And... You know, here's the homework. If, you, if you're not in a small, small group, we would love to see you get in one. And uh, maybe you don't really have a lot of time for it. I would encourage you to carve out space in your schedule. And uh, just pray about which one of these groups you, you would like to be in. They're all different. Uh, you could find one that's right for you. You don't have to, if you go to one and it's like it doesn't work, uh, for whatever reason, you could always try another one and shop around. But we really want to encourage you that if you're not in a group, uh, to, to go ahead and jump in a group. Sign up for one. Tear off the tab. Put your information on there, and you can put it in the offering box. They're in the middle aisle. And like I said, I know this is hard. Some of you are introverted. Some of you are very busy. Uh, so there, there are many, many, many reasons why this is hard. So let me just end by at the table here talking about Jesus. And so uh, one of the main metaphors that Jesus uses for salvation is welcome. And there in the upper room, the night before Jesus was crucified, he sat with his disciples around the table.
And he said, what I'm going to do, my, my body and blood, my body broken for you, my blood spilled for you, what I'm, what I'm going to do is, 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 is necessary so that I could welcome you to my table. And Jesus Christ has done that for every single one of us who have believed in him. You are welcome at his table. He has invited you in. Strangers, he has made family. Outsiders, he has brought in. He's given us all an identity. We are deeply, deeply loved by him and welcomed by him. And so take that step and, 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 and venture out, risk maybe a little bit, and, and welcome other people in Jesus' name. So on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he, he took the bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup. He said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood shed for the remission of your sins. Do this in remembrance of me.